Elevate every morning with Tommy John's Second Skin Underwear. The luxurious support of Second Skin guarantees everything will go smoothly. With over 20 million pairs sold and thousands of five-star reviews, guys love Tommy John. Plus, your most valuable assets are covered with Tommy John's best pair you'll ever wear or its free guarantee. Shop Tommy John's friends and family sale right now and get 25% off site-wide at TommyJohn.com slash Spotify. TommyJohn.com slash Spotify. See site for details. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code SPOTIFY for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Due to the graphic nature of this cult's crimes, listener discretion is advised. This episode includes discussions of manipulation and abuse that some people may find offensive. We advise extreme caution for children under 13. March 14, 1990. The outer door of the main bomb shelter was wheeled open to let the armored vehicle carriers in. There were seven shelters in all, each able to house up to 126 people. When it was over, 750 members of Church Universal and Triumphant would be underground in the wilds of Montana, spending the night in underground facilities they built themselves. They told themselves it might just be a drill. Their guru, Elizabeth Prophet, had said a nuclear war was imminent. But one person doubted that the end was near, Aaron Prophet, Elizabeth's daughter. Thoughts kept running through her mind. She was the one who'd predicted March 15th as the specific date of doomsday. Was this truly the end of the world? And if it wasn't, the chaos would be entirely her fault. What had she done? Hi, I'm Greg Polson. And I'm Vanessa Richardson. And this is Cults. Today, we're going to continue our deep dive into Church Universal and Triumphant. The church was led by Elizabeth Prophet, a woman who believed she could channel the voices of dead saints, Jesus, and Buddha. You can listen to previous episodes of Cults, as well as all of ParCast's other shows, wherever you listen to podcasts. A new episode comes out every Tuesday. Everyone always asks us how they can help support the show. And if you enjoy the podcast, the best way to do that is to leave a five-star review online. You can also find us on Facebook and Instagram as at Parcast and on Twitter at Parcast Network. We covered the rise of Church Universal and Triumphant through its founder, Elizabeth Prophet, last week. As a refresher, the church was most active from the mid-1970s to the early 1990s. From 1986 through the present, it's been based near Bozeman, Montana. Although the church was and is based on the West Coast, it has always had a nationwide reach, 
connecting to tens of thousands of people via audio tapes and its newsletter, as well as a collection of statements from the masters, long-dead saints and religious figures. Church Universal and Triumphant is best known for believing that the world would end due to a nuclear war and for the series of underground shelters in Montana that they built to protect them from the nuclear fallout. Their religion was centered around the belief that the church's leaders, Mark and Elizabeth, were in direct communication with dead saints and religious figures. The prophets also believed a person could ward off evil actions via intense chanting called decrees. Later on, Elizabeth Prophet tried to incorporate her five children, including her oldest son, Sean, and her oldest daughter, Erin, as leaders of the church. As we'll see, both grew disenchanted with the church and, despite having been raised in it since birth, were able to break away and start new lives. In part two, we're going to be looking at how and why people followed Elizabeth in Church Universal and Triumphant, specifically focusing on her children, who all grew up in the cult. We have direct insight from one of Elizabeth's daughters, Erin, who grew up in the church and wrote the memoir, Prophet's Daughter. We drew on Prophet's Daughter substantially for this podcast. It's one of the only existing looks at what happened behind the scenes in the church. It traces Erin and her brother Sean's journeys as they go from ardent believers to their eventual disillusionment with and split from the church. We'll start in the summer of 1983. Elizabeth had been the sole leader of the church for 10 years now, since Elizabeth's husband, Mark Prophet, died in 1973. Before then, Elizabeth had five children, Sean, Erin, Moira, Tatiana, and Seth. The church's main base of operations was in Southern California. It also owned 12,000 acres of land in Montana and was considering moving its headquarters there permanently. Elizabeth, at this point, was confident and happy. The church continued to add members at an impressive rate. Her hard work was bearing fruit. The church's message reached people coast to coast across the country. She believed that the masters continued to guide her, and she was beloved by church members. If only all her children, three of whom were now teenagers, felt the same way. Moira Prophet, Elizabeth and Mark's middle daughter and Aaron's younger sister by two years, had gone through a rebellious phase in high school that involved a lot of kissing. Moira had started college early and had come back to the ranch after finishing her first year of college. Aaron writes that when Elizabeth found out that Moira, now 16, had dated boys she considered unacceptable and had even partied off campus, Elizabeth dismissed Moira from the ranch, essentially kicking her out of the church. Moira had broken the rules. While Elizabeth had dismissed a lot of people from the church, this was the first time she'd sent away one of her own children. In November of 1984, Sean Prophet, Elizabeth's oldest child, turned 18. Elizabeth wanted to install him on the board of directors of the church as a way to keep control of the board, which was already small. The board had just three members, her, her husband Edward, and a member named C. Ward Stuckey, who was retired and generally agreeable. Sean was dating a church member named Kathleen at the time. But according to Aaron, Elizabeth felt Sean's girlfriend was unworthy of him and tried to dismiss her from the church. Sean, angry, moved off of the Montana ranch and back to California. 
Vanessa is going to take over on the psychology here and throughout the episode. Please note, Vanessa is not a licensed psychologist or psychiatrist, but she has done a lot of research for this show. Thanks, Greg. It's difficult being a teenager under any circumstances, but being the teenage son or daughter of a cult leader makes things that much harder. David Elkind, Ph.D., author of All Grown Up and No Place to Go, says teenagers, quote, construct an ideal of what parents should be when they compare their own parents to the ideal they find them wanting. Their parents are embarrassing, end quote. The contrast must have been particularly jarring for someone who grew up among people who literally worshipped his mother. Aaron reports that when Sean stormed out, Elizabeth called him a vessel of anger. She also claimed that Sean's anger somehow contributed to the Union Carbide gas leak disaster in Bhopal, India, the following month, which killed at least 3,700 people and injured hundreds of thousands more. But Elizabeth's need for control of the board was greater than her anger at her son. Six months later, in the summer of 1985, she reversed course and invited Sean back to the ranch to encourage him to take on a bigger role in the church. Aaron writes that this was the first time she started to doubt whether Elizabeth truly had a direct line to spiritual forces. Around this same time, in the summer of 1985, Elizabeth Prophet asked Aaron, then just 19, to train as a messenger, someone who could also hear the voices of saints and gods. Erin was reluctant. Erin had just finished her first year of college at the University of Southern California. After the relative isolation and strangeness of growing up in the church, Erin writes that she had enjoyed discovering newfound freedoms. She said, quote, I made friends with my roommates, had some gin and tonics, and passionately kissed a Marine guard from the White House, end quote. Erin writes in her memoir, she tried to do normal teenage activities, enjoy a social life at USC, join ROTC, and even get a job at Taco Bell. But her mother shut her down, pushing her to start training. Erin wasn't sure if she had the divine ability necessary to be a messenger. Janine Davis writes that as a counterpart to rebelling, teens seek the true independence offered by creating and accepting a challenge in order to grow themselves. Erin wavered, but with her mother's encouragement, she eventually talked herself into starting training. Being a messenger meant meditating daily, which took great focus. Pursuing that focus and discipline was a challenge that appealed to Erin. But as Erin was integrated into a leadership position in the church, Elizabeth got jealous, despite the fact that Elizabeth herself had wanted Erin in that role, encouraged her, and continued to train her. In August of 1987, Aaron had led an all-day prayer and chanting session against a New Age celebration called the Harmonic Convergence. Elizabeth believed the Harmonic Convergence was, quote, a plot by evil forces to steal our light, end quote. The staff had been chanting and praying since early morning, and Aaron, feeling they deserved to finally rest, released them at 9 p.m. But this wasn't enough for Elizabeth. Elizabeth called Aaron a golden calf, referencing the Old Testament Bible story of Aaron, son of Moses. In Elizabeth's mind, Aaron was too concerned with the well-being of the other staff members who had been chanting. Katerina Meredith, who has a BA in psychology and has studied cults for 12 years, compares cult leaders to abusers in abusive relationships. She notes that cult leaders equate jealousy with love. 
and are jealous of time spent with others. Elizabeth's resentment of Aaron was part of a pattern. Aaron writes that Elizabeth, quote, defrocked several ministers of the church over the years, end quote, when they became too popular. In the article, Cults Today, A New Social Psychological Perspective, author Yanya Lalich notes that one of the ways cult leaders keep followers in check is by a system of control. Lalich notes that followers go along with these arbitrary rules because of social pressure from other members, as well as the comfort of the external structure that the cult provides. One aspect of this control manifested in a rule Elizabeth created. Church staff members could only have sex twice a week, and only for 30 minutes at a time, and that they needed to pray both before and after. When Erin, now 22, married her boyfriend Michael that summer in 1987, Elizabeth sought to enforce this rule. She would ask Erin and Michael if they were obeying the restrictions on sex, telling Erin that if she had sex too often, her ability to see visions would be compromised. Meanwhile, Elizabeth's visions grew more disturbing. So did Erin's, egged on by her mother. Erin writes that she, quote, imagined the ranch as a fortress protected by a dome of light from night to night combinations of astral beasts, entities, and fallen angels would attack the walls and dome, end quote. Erin could not be sure whether the things she imagined were divine visions or not. But because the darker visions were introduced gradually, church members did not question them, nor did they doubt Elizabeth. This was probably due to a number of factors, and Yanya Lalich identifies multiple reasons that members would have simply accepted these strange visions. The charismatic authority of the leader, Elizabeth, who was very good both at public speaking and at interacting with the followers one-on-one, would have helped. In addition, the systems of influence in which followers reinforced each other's dedication to the cult and normalized it for others. Although Elizabeth's visions had gotten darker, she never specifically predicted an apocalypse. But in October of 1987, that changed. For the first time, Elizabeth Prophet, channeling the French 1700s nobleman Saint Germain, predicted that the Soviet Union would launch a nuclear first strike attack on the United States. In this speech, Elizabeth also channeled the turban-wearing Eastern master, El Moria, who specified that, quote, ere 24 months have passed, this nation must have the capacity to turn back any and all missiles, end quote. In early October of 1987, while in New York, Elizabeth was doing one of her dictations, the parts of her speeches where she claimed to be channeling long-dead saints. One saint predicted economic dark times were coming, and less than one week later, the stock market suffered the catastrophic crash of 1987. Aaron writes that it was after this speech that members started to think seriously about building bomb shelters. We'll return to our story in just a moment from the Parcast Network. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all, but it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. Elevate every morning with Tommy John's Second Skin Underwear. 
The luxurious support of Second Skin guarantees everything will go smoothly. With over 20 million pairs sold and thousands of five-star reviews, guys love Tommy John. Plus, your most valuable assets are covered with Tommy John's best pair you'll ever wear or its free guarantee. Shop Tommy John's friends and family sale right now and get 25% off site-wide at TommyJohn.com slash Spotify. TommyJohn.com slash Spotify. See site for details. And now back to our story. One of the reasons church members believed Elizabeth was because one of her predictions had turned out shockingly to come true. She had publicly stated that economic disaster would occur that month, October 1987. And less than a week later, the stock market suffered an historic crash. Church members' thinking was logical in a way, since the United States did not have the capacity to defend against a sudden nuclear missile attack the bomb shelters were necessary to survive. And then came Elizabeth's epic six-hour speech of July 4, 1988, where she continued to emphasize the coming nuclear apocalypse and talked about the four horses of the apocalypse coming to pay back the United States for its bad karma. In an article in the Billings Gazette, journalist Susan Ulp notes that it was Erin herself who directed where the blast-resistant shelters should be. The church's engineers had specific logistical questions about the shelters that Elizabeth did not feel comfortable asking. How many they should build, where the shelter should be installed, and even how much food they should store. So Elizabeth turned to her daughter. Erin writes that she didn't trust herself to answer those questions, but her mother said, quote, It's not possible for you to make a mistake. The mantles of El Moria and of the messenger are over you, end quote. There were several possible locations for the shelters on the 12,000 acres of Montana property the church owned, called The Ranch. The most logical place probably would have been at the main Royal Teton headquarters. It also would have been the least expensive. There was also The Heart, the portion of the ranch in a valley surrounded by a constantly running creek. It was 1,000 feet higher than the main portion of the ranch and much harder to get to. Aaron, trying to channel El Moria, stated, quote, We should build six shelter complexes in the heart. Survivability is greater there. End quote. Despite the fact that it would be significantly more expensive and time consuming to install the shelters at the heart, everyone went along with it. They believed El Moria had spoken. It's important to note that Aaron was not trying to deceive anyone. She didn't gain anything if the shelters were built in a difficult location. She truly felt El Moria might somehow be speaking through her and was trying to work out what would be best long-term for the church. But she was heavily influenced by her mother's firm belief that an apocalypse and the end of civilization were imminent. And so that fall in 1988, members of the church began construction on six underground bomb shelters. One does not actually need an environmental permit to build an underground shelter. However, church members wanted to build multiple shelters, with each shelter being large enough for 126 people to live in. To do this without getting an environmental impact statement would, at bare minimum, violate the spirit of the law. The church members did not want to further alienate townspeople, so they decided to secretly construct the shelters in pieces above ground in a barn they owned and then install them underground after all the paperwork had been taken care of. For a doomsday cult, Church of Universal Truth was surprisingly respectful of the law. 
Each shelter was designed to be in the shape of an H. Each one would have a utility tank that could be used to generate power and a central location for kitchen and shared bathrooms. Lorenzo Di Tommaso, a professor of religion at Concordia University in Montreal, talks about the appeal of the doomsday beliefs that were driving church members. In Live Science Today, he's quoted as saying, Problems have become so big with no solutions in sight that we no longer see ourselves able as human beings to solve these problems. From a biblical point of view, God is going to solve them. Erin took her own words to mean that a war was indeed coming. At this time, she believed it was a real warning from El Moria. This meant that the church's other assets should be sold. The church had its own printing press and made a sizable portion of its money from selling audio tapes and videotapes. But Erin, believing herself to be taking dictation from El Moria, stated that this equipment should all be sold. They needed the money to build the shelters. And besides, after a nuclear war, videotape production would be useless. Selling off its ability to make audio and videotapes carried great risk. If nuclear war failed to happen, the church would suffer a great financial loss and would be unable to quickly resume generating money from one of its best sources of income. There were further financial consequences to the church's decision. Elizabeth asked Aaron to channel the saints and find out how much food they should store. Aaron writes that she had a sudden vision of a story from the Old Testament. She remembered the seven years of famine in the Bible. So she said the church should store enough food to stay for seven months in the shelters and enough for seven years in bulk storage. This would dramatically increase the cost of food. Church members had been planning to save just one year's worth of food, so there was suddenly much more work to be done in terms of preparing, canning, and storing. The church's engineers had to design a separate underground warehouse in between all the shelters, called the Food Barn 3. One of the aspects that may have contributed to this willingness is the appealing nature of doomsday preparations. Emily Machar writes in Psychology Today that, quote, There is an element of wish fulfillment in prepping. Doomsday believers find something primally appealing about being self-sufficient from the constraints of civilization, end quote. Elizabeth's husband at the time, Edward, who was a source of stability to everyone and tracked the church's finances, warned Elizabeth that the food preparation, combined with the cost of installing the shelters in a difficult location, would cost millions of dollars. Although the church had an estimated $4 million on hand on this point, building the shelters would leave the church with almost no money left. But the wheels of doomsday preparation were in motion now. The saints had spoken, and nothing could stop the church from building the shelters. In 1989, as Church Universal and Triumphant continued its bomb shelter building binge, Aaron Prophet started to be troubled by other aspects of the church. Elizabeth, her mother and the church's leader, had decided that since the shelters did not have any space for everyone, people who wanted a space would have to become permanent staff. The church, like many cults, had multiple levels of participation. Prophet's daughter has the details. Quote, community members did not live on site. Volunteers lived in staff housing, but were not paid. Probationary staff lived in staff housing and received $150 a month for their work, end quote. But to become a permanent staff member, you had to hand over all your assets to the church. These people were then officially decreed to be spiritually superior to everyone else and could have private sessions with Elizabeth. 
Elizabeth had been known to fire permanent staff members and send them away with no warning or, writes Aaron, quote, because they developed expensive medical needs, end quote. But most members stayed loyal to her and joined her to help the church build more private shelters. Church Universal and Triumphant had purchased an additional 8,000 acres of land, 15 miles north of its 12,500-acre main ranch, near the town of Chico Hot Springs. The church built houses for its members there and called the subdivision Glastonbury. Glastonbury was named for the town in England that supposedly housed the Holy Grail, and the homes were painted bright green and purple and had streets named after the Zodiac, like Aquarius Lane. It generated a culture clash in Glastonbury between the hippie-like church members and the more down-to-earth Montana residents. At the Glastonbury subdivision, there were literally dozens of additional private bomb shelters being built in a variety of different shapes and sizes. Some added basements to their houses. Others built underground concrete domes. Elizabeth had given general approval for people at Glastonbury to build their own shelters, but there was no oversight from church leaders. No one questioned the fact that a nuclear war was coming and coming within one year's time. But construction on the shelters was slow. In July of 1989, when it became clear that the shelters would not be finished by the doomsday date of October 2nd, 1989, Elizabeth asked Aaron for an update. Aaron, trying to access her subconscious and get in touch with the saints, remembered that Elizabeth had always warned her, beware the Ides of March. She told her mother that El Moria was giving her a new doomsday date of March 15th, 1990. With Doomsday on March 15th, instead of October 2nd, church members would have five more months to actually complete and install the shelters. Aaron's attempt to access visions and talk with the saints like her mother did could be seen as a folie à deux, which is French for a madness of two. It refers to when delusions or hallucinations are transferred from one individual to another. In the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders, the folie à deux is known as a shared psychosis. It frequently occurs when two people live close to each other and may be isolated from others. In a given pair of people, a dominant person's belief in a delusion can be strong enough that the other person in the pair can be persuaded that the delusion is real. The preparation work and food storage led naturally to some church members trying to acquire weapons. If civilization was going to break down, the future could get ugly. The church would need weapons to defend against marauding bands who might try to attack their shelters and steal their food and supplies. But some members, indirectly authorized by Elizabeth, went a bit too far in trying to acquire weapons. On July 8, 1989, longtime church member Vernon Hamilton was arrested for trying to buy weapons while using a fake name, which is a felony. Vernon had been trying to buy weapons for the cult. Aaron Prophet confirms that he had been given at least tacit permission to make these purchases by Elizabeth. And because of the sheer number of bullets and guns he attempted to buy, over 1,000 rounds of ammunition and 17 rifles, some of which could shoot through body armor, the story made headlines, putting Church Universal and Triumphant on the national radar for the first time, and not in a good way. Although the arrests panicked Elizabeth, Aaron, and the other church leaders, none of them, nor the other members, were swayed in their beliefs that saints had warned them about the end of the world, now just nine months away. 
If you're someone who believes in doomsday, any event that happens can be used as evidence that doomsday is coming. It's high-stakes confirmation bias. For the Church Universal and Triumphant, the arrests could mean that dark forces were at work trying to stop the members from surviving. If anything, they're more likely to cling to their beliefs as a respite from anything negative in their lives. In Scientific American, Harvard Medical School psychiatrist Stephen Schlossman discusses this appealing factor of doomsday cults. It's a return to simplicity. He says, quote, People frequently romanticize the end times. They imagine surviving, thriving, and going back to nature, end quote. Essentially, when people feel society has become too chaotic, the idea of returning to hunter-gatherer days can be enormously calming. A cult that allows members to invest in this fantasy is going to be largely popular with those who feel easily overwhelmed. But most people don't generally imagine having to deal with criticism before the end of the world. And the first wave of curious stories and bad press the church was experiencing was about to get worse. Mara Prophet had been estranged from her mother, Elizabeth, and the rest of the church for several years, and she was now speaking out. Moira gave two interviews to the Montana newspaper, The Billings Gazette, criticizing the church and claiming that chanting led to mind control and brainwashing. Though there's no scientific evidence to support that particular argument. Some of her criticisms were fair. Mora said that people say they would live and die for my mom and members were definitely loyal to Elizabeth. Some were not. Moira also stated church members might physically harm her in revenge for her interview, which did not in fact happen, and seemed highly unlikely at the time. But the timing of the interview, combined with the arrest of Vernon and new attention from law enforcement after several relatively peaceful years, were enough to make church members think they might finally be encountering bad omens and bad karma possibly even the foreshadowing of an apocalypse to come. Our story will continue in a moment after a brief message. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. The Hargan women seemed to have it all. We were blessed. My mom was amazing. But detectives would soon discover... Inside the house, there were the bodies of two women. A story of betrayal you would struggle to believe if it wasn't true. I am just praying to God, this is a sick joke. From 48 Hours, this is Blood is Thicker, the Hargan family killings. Listen to Blood is Thicker, the Hargan family killings, wherever you get your podcasts. And now, back to our story. When the news about Vernon's arrest broke, church members tried to keep the bomb shelter plans quiet from the media. But a few enterprising reporters discovered that the shelters were indeed under construction. And when journalists found out about Elizabeth's October 2, 1989 doomsday prediction, interest and concern about the church surged. That date was just a few months away. Although the date of the apocalypse had by this point changed to March 15, 1990, that date was not yet public. 
And so several magazine and newspaper reporters came to the ranch, trying to see what preparations were being made for the end of the world. But there was nothing to see. Not yet. So after Elizabeth Prophet's public deadline of October 2nd passed, most of the reporters, the non-local ones, faded away, having decided there was no story. As the months passed, church members continued work on the shelters. Fall turned to winter, and January and February of 1990 zoomed by, with frantic preparations continuing on construction. Since the shelters were nearing completion, there would not be any more extensions on Doomsday from El Moria or any other messengers. They were not needed. And the bad karma facing America and the world was still building. Elizabeth had given herself the tiniest leeway by stating that a bad period of karma for the country, lasting 11 years, would begin in March or April. But for the members in the camp, March 15th was the day of reckoning. March 14th rolled around, and the exodus into the multiple shelters began. One might have expected there to be panic in the air, sobbing and screaming. But by all accounts, members' reactions were the exact opposite. Optimistic. As Aaron wrote in Prophet's Daughter, quote, people were stowing items in lockers as they prepared for the midnight deadline, end quote. Members even believed that after the nuclear holocaust had passed and they started to rebuild civilization, that it might be the beginning of a golden age, a time of united spiritual and physical perfection. Clay Jones at the watchdog website Science-Based Medicine describes thinking like this as an example of the Pollyanna principle, putting a far too optimistic spin on events that a neutral person would view as clearly negative. Dr. Judith Rich, author of Rx for the Soul, writes that people use the Pollyanna principle as a method to keep sadness away. At 11 p.m. on March 14th, at the heart, the location of the seven shelters, Elizabeth's son Sean was hustling followers with a bullhorn, trying to get as many members as possible down below ground. The chaotic scene is described like this, quote, the narrow tunnels were choked with pregnant women, babies, and the elderly, all pushed on carts by able-bodied men, end quote. 750 members would eventually make it underground for the night. There were even two members above ground prepared to chop down trees at the sign of the first missile strike. The trees were designed to block the road to the shelter compound in case anyone tried to enter. At this point, the Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco, and Firearms was on the scene, keeping a very wary eye out. The arrests of Vernon and Edward had put the church on the BATF's radar. The Bureau was attempting to keep tabs on the church in person. They had no way to survey them electronically. Local officers from the Sheriff's Department were there as well, as they had been regularly. While law enforcement all knew the shelters were being built, they did not know about the March 15th date. Officials didn't know exactly what was going on, but it was clear from the activity behind the gate that protected the ranch's driveway that something was happening. The shelter had radio stations, so members could still follow the news. That evening was a tense one. Many members were convinced it was only a matter of hours before missiles were hit and nuclear war would begin. Although everyone had a bed, many members could not sleep, nervously checking the airwaves or talking to each other for comfort trying to distract themselves, or trying to prepare for the fall of civilization. 
But by 9 a.m. on the morning of March 15, 1990, when the news reports were full of typical local events and no disasters, it became clear the world had not ended. After the world failed to end as Elizabeth had predicted, she announced that the Masters had held back the war to give the membership time to prepare. This alternate explanation may have seemed like a fig leaf, but members were predisposed to not leave the church. For many members, the church was their entire community and their biggest source of social ties. As long as they could find a single reason to stay, they would. In some cases like this, disconfirmation can, under certain circumstances, strengthen people's beliefs and support of whichever end-of-the-world organization they belong to, according to Leon Festinger in When Prophecy Fails. In part, this is because it's easier for the brain to adjust a belief around one thing, an incorrect prediction, than it is to completely uproot one's life by leaving a cult. Humans seek the path of least resistance. In addition, a person may be so invested in an organization that they subconsciously want to stay. It is clear that church membership did not drop off much in the immediate aftermath of March and April 1990. As Church Universal and Triumphant members left the shelters and tried to resume living above ground, they had to contend with national media attention and no small amount of mockery. Some tried to insist to outsiders that the events of March 14th, packing everything up, driving equipment into the underground shelters, closing the doors, had been a drill. Carly Flandro, a reporter for the Bozeman Daily Chronicle, spoke to one narrowly Duffy of the church's ministers. Duffy said the preparations were, quote, definitely a drill, end quote. But if it was a drill, it was a very thorough one. But Elizabeth stated that they had prayed and chanted hard enough that Almoria had granted them a reprieve. That was good enough for most members. Very few people left Church Universal and Triumphant after the events of March 1990. Members seemed evenly split on whether March 14th had simply been a drill or whether it was a very narrow escape. Elizabeth was still very good at connecting with people, and her followers wanted to believe her. Erin backs this up herself in her memoir, quote, the apocalyptic groups that best survive disconfirmation are groups whose leaders quickly offer an explanation for why the apocalypse did not occur, end quote. And it's key to note that the church's core beliefs did not revolve around the apocalypse. The beliefs in chanting, channeling dead saints, seeing the violent flame, a force for good in people, none of that changed. At worst, two of the saints, out of several, had gotten something wrong. And there were many other saints and voices to listen to. But even having dodged a nuclear war, some bad karma may have rebounded on the church. Or maybe just bad luck. In April, two of the oil tanks that Church Universal and Triumphant had installed, along with the bomb shelters, cracked. This caused a large fuel spill that endangered Mulherron Creek. While the spill was on land owned by the church, the creek flowed into public land. Environmentalists who might otherwise have ignored the church were outraged. The church was on the hook for the entire cost of the cleanup, which ran to over $1 million. Ironically, just after the spill, Church Universal and Triumphant enjoyed its biggest mainstream audience. On May 17, 1990, Elizabeth Prophet appeared on Nightline and was interviewed by Ted Koppel. She believed that she could subconsciously expose millions of people to the good works of the church. 
Koppel interviewed Elizabeth remotely, broadcasting Elizabeth from church headquarters, so Elizabeth had some control over what was in the background behind her. Erin Prophet notes that her mother took special care to put a small decoration called the Chart of the Presence behind her, making sure people would see it. It was a representation of Jesus next to a ball of light. To a non-church member, it might have just looked like a Christmas tree decoration. Although Ted Koppel asked tough questions about her nuclear war predictions, Elizabeth batted them away with ease. She denied that she had given a specific date for the end of the world. This was technically true, albeit barely. As a reminder, Aaron was the one who had come up with the March 15th date. Elizabeth seemed to be in denial about the impact of her prophecies on her followers, refusing to recognize that they may have been financially or psychologically harmed by her doomsday predictions. But other than that, she remained impressively unruffled. It's not everyone who can coolly handle Ted Koppel. Though the Ted Koppel interview wasn't a debacle for the church, it wasn't the success members had hoped for. There was no substantial uptick in membership. And eventually, life returned to normal for everyone. The media moved on. Without new members, they faced financial concerns. The church had drained almost its entire funding to build the bomb shelters, $20 million, non-refundable. The church still had millions of dollars worth of gold, though. It had decided that gold would still be useful post-apocalypse, but now it had to sell the gold to stay solvent. And while the church had savings, many of its individual members did not. Several had spent their life savings preparing for doomsday and were now hurting. Erin Prophet, by this point, was feeling sympathetic towards those people. She writes about reading their letters and asking her mother to help them. But Elizabeth Prophet was resolute and could not admit to the slightest mistake. She told Erin to stop her sympathy and insisted that she hadn't explicitly told anyone to build bomb shelters. She had just been encouraging people to use common sense safety measures. Elizabeth's behavior here is a good example of narcissism, a failure to empathize with others. But what made it possible for Aaron to break away and start feeling sympathetic for these people? Aaron had clearly developed the ability to think critically. The fact that so many people had chosen to go underground as a direct result of her words made her nervous. She started questioning everything starting with her own beliefs. In The New Yorker, Elizabeth Colbert writes that while facts alone do not change our minds, emotional connection to others can. Aaron's connection to her brother, Sean, himself a skeptic of the church, and to the members of the church who had been harmed by the doomsday belief, helped her start to pull away from its teachings. But Aaron and other members didn't fully pull away just yet. They liked the aspects of the cult that were closer to a normal religion, the community, the rituals, and the social connection. It wasn't until the economic recession of 1992 that members really drifted from the cult. Around this time in the summer of 1992, Erin had talked about her doubts and her abilities and her mother's management of the church with her husband, Michael. He shared his doubts about Elizabeth and Erin listened they began to talk seriously about leaving the church. And then Elizabeth Prophet dropped a bombshell on her children. Driven by a desire to cleanse herself, she confessed to having an affair with her second husband, Randall King, while her first husband, Mark Prophet, was still alive. 
Erin realized she'd had to obey rules around sex her mother hadn't even followed. After a series of conversations with Michael, Erin Prophet would officially resign from the church in January of 1993. Erin told herself it was a temporary absence at the time. But while she would return to the grounds to see her mother, and while she was occasionally tempted to try to access the messengers again, she never rejoined. At first, Elizabeth Prophet did not take her daughter's resignation well. Erin writes that her mother suddenly discovered that Elizabeth herself had been the ancient Egyptian Queen Nefertiti in a past life, and that her daughter, Erin, had been her murderer. Erin showed great courage in leaving the church. She had been born into it and still had access to substantial power as essentially the right hand of her mother. Most members liked and respected Erin, and with her brother Sean, she was one of the two heirs apparent to take over the church when her mother stepped down. She had to abandon any future leadership position in the church and the security that came with it, leave the community she'd known her entire life, and take a leap into the unknown. Erin's willingness to accept difficult truths would have helped make it easier for her to leave the church. After leaving, Erin reconnected with her younger sister, Moira, who had been officially estranged from the family for four years. All five Prophet siblings remain in contact to this day. The New York Times Magazine reported around this time that Elizabeth Prophet was still claiming the end of the world might come, but the church, looking at its financial needs, began to sell off its land. Elizabeth and other members may have been laboring under a sunk cost fallacy, which is the belief that you've put so much effort into a belief or a set of actions that you can't change now because of the sheer amount of energy you've put in. David McRaney, in his book, You Are Not So Smart, describes it as, quote, the more you invest in something, the harder it becomes to abandon it, end quote. In 1996, six years after the end of the world failed to come, Elizabeth stepped down from the church leadership. She was 58, and an illness was manifesting itself. Elizabeth had always been great at remembering people's names, but now she would forget them. She'd become confused about dates and appointments. She would later be diagnosed with early-onset Alzheimer's. As a result of Elizabeth's illness and reduced role, church members had the opportunity to find someone new to serve as president. They chose Gilbert Clairbeau, a management consultant originally from Belgium. Gilbert immediately set about figuring out how to make the church more mainstream. Fewer doomsday predictions, more concentration on community. He instituted some actual corporate guidance that the church would have to abide by. The fact that Church Universal and Triumphant survives today is probably due in part to the decision to hire him, his mainstreaming efforts, and the church's ability to follow his suggestions seem to have contributed. Elizabeth Prophet died from complications due to Alzheimer's on October 16, 2009. It had been 11 years since she had led the church. By that point, her children had either significantly reduced their involvement with the church universal and triumphant, or left it outright. Erin was in the midst of writing her memoir, Prophet's Daughter, and Elizabeth's son, Sean, had moved to L.A. and had been publicly critical of the church. But although church universal and triumphant's official membership has declined, it not only still exists, but is actively rebranded to make itself more accessible. 
There are no more doomsday predictions, no more talk of bomb shelters or apocalypse, and the church is using the internet to spread its message further. To the extent that a cult can tame itself, it seems church universal and triumphant has. And there must be something here we can learn from this case and apply to other cults. Even though most of its membership thought the end of the world was coming and went underground into bomb shelters, no violence broke out. And when everyone realized that the world would continue, there was no mass suicide. Although many suffered substantial financial losses, people were able to pick themselves back up and move on with their lives. Why was disaster averted in this specific case? In part, it was Elizabeth herself. While she did seek and enjoy power, she truly did seem to have her members' best interests at heart, however misguided her actions were. In addition, while the church partially isolated its membership, it never sought to fully control them. The church had rules, but it never tried to cut itself off from outsiders completely. It always kept one foot planted in the real world. Whatever Elizabeth's flaws may have been, she clearly raised her children to be independent in some fundamental ways, and it's that independence that may have averted a worse disaster. So many stories of cults end with murder, suicide, terror, and mass arrests. This is one of the very few that seems to have found some balance. Thanks again for tuning in to Cults. We'll be back with another episode next Tuesday. Some of you have asked how you can help the show. If you enjoy Cults, the best way to help is to leave a five-star review wherever you're listening. You can find Cults and all of ParCast podcasts on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Play, CastBox, TuneIn, or on your favorite podcast directory. You can also find us on Facebook and Instagram as at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network. We'll see you next time. Cults was created by Max Cutler and is a production of Cutler Media and is part of the ParCast Network. It is produced by Max and Ron Cutler, sound designed by Kenny Hobbs, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Paul Mahler, Maggie Admire, and Carly Madden. Cults is written by Greg Macklin and stars Greg Polson and Vanessa Richardson.